The NFL Draft may be over, but the Ringer NFL Show isn't going anywhere. On Mondays, join Kevin and Nora as they look ahead to the 2021 season. And on Wednesdays, check out Flying Coach Season 2 with NFL Network's Peter Schrager and Rams head coach Sean McVay. The two longtime friends are joined by guests from around the sports and entertainment world to discuss the latest NFL news, tell stories from their careers, and break down the game from their unique perspectives. Check out The Ringer NFL Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else, like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit, where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a very delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to, though. But take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you, Yola Tango. Go check out Yola Tango on tour this summer and fall. They're playing a lot of places on the East Coast, starting September 17th, Mount Holyoke, down to Providence, Philadelphia, Jersey City, then out to the West Coast in uh, Sonoma on October 15th, uh, going all the way to Seattle, and then uh, they're in Europe mid-October, so check them out. We have another musician. Her name is Michelle Zauner. You may know her as her band name, Japanese Breakfast, singer, guitarist, and most recently, published author. She wrote an essay in 2018 for The New Yorker about the loss of her mother due to cancer. It was a phenomenal success because I read it and a lot of other people read it, particularly ones that are Asian American and Korean. And that translated into her expanding on it and turning it into a best selling memoir book titled Crying in H Mart. If you don't know what H Mart is, we talk about it a lot on this show. It's not the only Asian supermarket that specializes primarily in Korean things, but you can get Vietnamese, Chinese. Mexican, all kinds of goodness. And they also have amazing food courts. There's so many great Asian markets, whether they're tiny or big, they're very near near and dear to me and to many, many people that are in the pursuit of great food. But this, this is a, a book that was heavily recommended to me. And after reading the essay in 2018, it took me some time and, and I didn't, didn't jump into it like everyone else. Because it deals with some heavy stuff, right? There's been a lot of cancer in my family. My mom's been dealing with cancer and still is. And she's recently visited me uh, to see her grandson. And the idea of food uh, in my household and in many, many households, particularly Korean and Asian American households, and Asian households in general, food is probably the one time that people truly communicate. 
and it's how love is expressed. In a household where love, the word love and affection was not very much shown, food was oftentimes the glue that tied everything together. It was the the highlight of any memory. And Michelle is an extremely talented writer, and I cannot believe how good this book is. Please check it out. And to everyone that sent me a copy, thank you. I'm glad that I read it, and I encourage you guys all to do the same. Uh, Before I get into that podcast, just want to talk about a couple things. I have been cooking, I don't know, since the pandemic started. Like It seems like 17, 18 months. It's been a lot of food. And after Grace's in-laws left... Uh, they lived with us for about nine months. It's It's been a smaller number of people to cook for. But now that I have my brother and my mom and, and a couple friends maybe staying with us over the next couple months, I'm cooking a lot more, guys. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's so funny that one person, one adult can totally change your grocery shopping list and how much food you need to make. And this is something I just never realized as a kid. So to my mom and to anyone that prepares meals for your family, my heart goes out to you, man, because I don't know how people cook for growing kids and adults and more than two adults. Let me just say that. So what a pain in the ass. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's a fucking pain in the ass, but I love it. I love feeding my mom, trying to give her as much protein as possible. And one of her favorite things to eat is oxtails. Kori komtang, it's um, just an oxtail soup. And I'm going to throw my my brother and sister under the bus because they don't know how to cook this and they need to learn. Because now that my mom is living by herself, she doesn't know how to cook a lot of this. She doesn't cook this stuff for herself and she's not cooking it for her kids. So no one's actually making this stuff for her. So it's, you know, she's been with me a few days and I've just been feeding her uh, ungodly amount of Korean food. And uh, she's like, ah, I just don't get to eat this stuff anymore. No one makes me go to Gontang. So Esther, Young, June, step up your game. Just don't take her out to restaurants. You got to make her this stuff. And uh, if you've never had oxtails before, and this is a, I digress, but this is what I really wanted to talk about. I think it's the best part of the whole goddamn cow. I love the ribeye. I love the chuck roast. I love all parts of the cow with the exception of the filet, which I'll eat if it's part of a porterhouse, but rarely will I ever eat it because I just think the oxtail is just the glorious piece of meat. It is just so, so sticky and tender when you cook it properly and succulent. I love it. It is just one of the most amazing pieces of meat when properly cooked, and it's fucking expensive. It used to not be this expensive, but if you get like, say, a pound and a half, that's probably like 18, 19 bucks, and you need at least three pounds to make a flavorful soup or braise out of it. And if you've never cooked oxtails before, this is what I'm going to tell you to do. I'm not going to say braise it. I want you to just taste the broth. There's so much bone broth and Broth goodness, shout out Mark Canora and Brodo. Please check out his stuff. But oxtail broth is probably one of the best soups you could possibly make. And I'm going to just tell you, oxtails are fucking gnarly, man. And thank God they're when you buy them at the supermarket, they're not as a tail. Because breaking down a whole tail uh, is pretty tough. And cleaning it is pretty tough. So thankfully, 
oftentimes when you buy oxtails, it's trimmed down quite a bit. You may need to trim it down a little bit more. If you're going to roast them to make a braise, that's one thing. But this is a just, I'm just giving you guys a very simple recipe. Uh, if you want oxtail soup with a clean broth, that is very rich uh, simultaneously. I just tried to give it a, a rinse or two in water. Uh, don't salt it. I just try to take some of the excess blood out and then trim out some of the fat with a paring knife. And I'm not searing it. I just cover it with water. I add a few garlic cloves. I season with some fish sauce. I am out of savory salt. I'm out of Momofuku savory salt. So I have to get some. Ryan Healy, if you're listening, please help me out. I really use savory salt a lot in almost everything. Uh, without that, I just use some of my last redbud fish sauce, which I have brought some over. And uh, I season mostly with that. And uh, that's it. I just use garlic and no ginger in this. And I cook it till I can start to taste the broth, if that makes any sense. So I cook it unseasoned without any fish sauce or salt or savory salt or soy or whatever until it starts to like uh, be safe to eat, if that makes any sense. So I can taste the salt content. So once I have the tail submerged in say three or four inches of water and it's cooking at a hard boil, then I season it. I'll season it with savory salt, momotomari, or soy. The momotomari is pretty much the staple that I use all the time. I'm also out on that. I just use the last of it on this dish. Um, anyway, however you want to season the broth with salt, do so. And add a lot of cracked black pepper, and that's it. You let that braise lid on or lid off. I do lid on low to medium boil for about four hours. And when I said check the seasoning, I want it to be like 75% there, right? In terms of the salt content, 70 to 80% of it to be uh, close to final seasoning. And then once the meat starts to, you can almost tell like it's uh, like in like 30, 40 minutes, if you continue cooking the oxtails or any kind of high collagen, high sinew meat that's breaking down over a long cooking time. Once it starts to come off the bone, but not, it's, I'm not saying falling off the bone. I hate falling off the bone, but you can see that just a little bit more cooking time, it's going to be done. It's going to be tender and soft. That's when I add my aromatics. I add garlic. I add a little bit more garlic. I add like three onions sliced. I add some scallions and um, I added some more black pepper. Um, what else did I add? I added some other excess beef broth that I had. I had some leftover beef broth and I just added that. And that was pretty much it, guys. And I let that cook down with a lid off, reduce it till I get the seasoning on the broth exactly the way I want it. Here, if I had MSG, I would add that. I forgot to buy accent at the supermarket. I got to go do that. If you really are in a pinch and it's not flavorful enough, you could use some dashida, which is actually great and delicious. But I had a pretty beefy soup, and uh, I didn't have moo radish, so I just used red ball radish. I, I cut some of that up, and um, that was it. And I skimmed the scum off. That's important to note. But I left a lot of the fat, right? So when you're cooking this thing, if this makes any sense, there's probably going to be quarter of an inch, you know, two centimeters of fat, if you, depending on how much fat were on the, on the oxtails. And don't skim that. I know that's going to sound crazy, 
But I then put it on a ripping boil because this is how you get that cloudy tonkotsu style broth, except that this has way less fat than a tonkotsu style ramen broth. That fat you want to start to boil so hard that it will emulsify into the soup. And that fat is what makes the soup, in my opinion, so flavorful. Yes, it's not even the the oxtails themselves, but it's the, the fat that comes off the oxtails. And if you boil it hard enough, it will become emulsifying. And that's pretty much it. You can add some noodles to it, some, say, vermicelli. I just serve it on some rice, and I make a dipping sauce for the oxtails. And I, I use some momofuku soy. I use some momofuku sesame oil. I use some rice wine vinegar. I put some, uh, I don't have any dry chilies. So I used a little bit of jalapeno and I smashed and minced a piece of garlic. I'll put some agave in there, season the taste. And I put some sesame seeds. And the way I like to eat oxtails is I put it on a bowl with rice. I put it with some soup and you, you just go to town. But what I love about the oxtails is you can't really eat it with a spoon. It would be like eating ribs or barbecue with a spoon. Uh, I would say, yeah, ribs on a bone. You can't do that. So you got to use your hands. And they're just too big. I like bigger oxtails. I don't like the end, smaller pieces. And once the soup cools down a bit, so I'm eating the soup hot with some rice. I'm eating it with gaktugi. You have to eat any kind of tang soup, uh, Korean word for soup, with gaktugi. You have to. You just have to. Thankfully, we had some, and you're eating that with gaktiki, eating some rice. And as the soup cools down just enough where you can hold on to the big chunk of oxtail, you, then you start to dip that into your sauce that you just made, and you eat it like it's ribs. It's just, if you've never experienced what it's like to sort of have sticky collagen lips all over your fat everywhere, all over your face from oxtails, you're missing out. Anyway, I did not plan on talking about oxtails for damn near 13 minutes, but there, I did it. You probably listened to the longest rant about oxtails of all time, and I'm fucking happy. I'm happy that somebody did it, but I don't want to talk aimlessly any further. I want you guys to listen to our conversation with Michelle Zauner, aka Japanese Breakfast, the author of a book you should all be reading, Crying in Age Mart. A beautiful, beautiful book, a beautiful love letter to her mother and to the idiosyncratic behavior of Asian moms all over the world. God bless you. We love you. Thank you, Michelle, for joining us. Here's my conversation with Michelle and Chris Yoon. Thank you for joining us, Michelle. Um, I don't know where to begin. I, I will first start off by saying this. Six different people sent me your book. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Literally yeah. six. And I think that's how much people felt that your book would resonate with me personally. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny because I feel like so many people were like, you've got to get on David Chang's podcast. And I was like, that's really up to David. <laughs> This is like a real universe, like matchmaking universe, because I swear yeah. no fewer than 7 million people were like, if you don't have Japanese <laughs> breakfast, if you don't have Michelle's honor on the show, you guys are idiots. <laughs> yeah. Even our producer, Isaac, who's not on, is like, oh my God, I love Japanese, because he's a musician. He's like, 
you have to, you have to, oh my God, I, I, he was freaking out. So you, you have a lot of fans and a lot of my immediate friends said, hey, Dave, when your New Yorker article came out, when did the New Yorker article came out? It came out a couple of years ago, right? 2018. Yeah, when that came out, that was sent to me by everybody uh, wow. in my universe. So I think the stars are aligned and, and we're honored to have you here. Um, I don't know where to begin other than I, I, I wanted to say that, you know, my, my mom, who I haven't seen in, in a number of months, which is why your book was like very hard for me to read because it definitely is stuff that I've lived through, I've gone through. Yes, there's an age gap. And yes, I haven't been born and raised in, in Oregon, but there's a lot of similarities. And I wanted to thank you because I've never read anything like that before, ever. Thank you. Chris, did it reconnect with you at all? Um, let me say in the best possible way, this was like the hardest time reading your book. Just like <laughs> the the most difficult time reading this. And, and that's where I wanted to sort of start. I've grown up in my family. I'm Chinese American <laughs> where we don't talk about death. Like death is completely verboten. You talk about in your book, you know, being in a building in Korea that doesn't have a fourth floor because the number four is symbolic mm. of death. It sounds like death. Like Asian families tend to not want to deal with death head on. And your book is, is a memoir of your life, yes, but primarily about losing your mother. And so I guess my first question was, I imagine it was at least seven times harder to write than it was to for us to read, you know, was, was that a challenge to, to confront death in this way, to, to talk about it so openly? Did you have to get over a hump to do that? There were parts of the book that were really hard to revisit and really difficult to write, but I was also really filled with this sense of urgency for people to really understand what I endured. And I think that also really propelled me. And I think that a lot of what I do as a creative person is this desperate search for understanding that sort of is always evading me no matter how much validation I get. So I think in some ways, I mean, there was just a lot of years of working on this book that were pure agony, but for the most part, I, I also felt like it wasn't so much like, should I not? I didn't think much about other people reading it or I didn't hesitate too much with how far I went with it. Ultimately, I always felt like it was better to go there, read it later, and decide whether or not to scale back. But ultimately, I, I did feel like it was really important to show death and all its horror and like illness and all of its horror because I think that I was so angry during that time that nothing had kind of prepared me for it. Yeah, that it was, it was unflinching, Michelle, <laughs> and, and just... The kind of thing I think when, Dave, is it different for you? I, I think when people talk about death in my family and in my friend groups, you kind of just skip over all of those details, all of the parts that you spend a long portion of this book just giving us the beat by beat, what it was like helping your mother bathe, what it was like to see her deteriorate, what it was like to try to take her on one last trip and for that to all fall apart. You know, I, I, I guess... You know, I'm just, I'm surprised. I'm surprised at how you are able to be so forthcoming with all of that is, is, is what I'm saying. It's a beautiful book. And and listen, you're an amazing musician, but I was like, I, I literally said this to myself and to my wife when I was reading. I was like, fuck her, man. She can't do both <laughs> things well. 
This is really good writing. Shit. Um, Says the man who does so much. (laughs) (laughs) Who does literally everything. (laughs) You're really, you're, you're extraordinary at writing. And I say that because for me, I could connect with this book in ways and really empathize as much as I can without ever truly being in your shoes, but to matter pattern it with in the same way that with Minari and, and, and all these other things that I've never had as cultural touch points to be like, oh my God, this is everything that you wrote when your mom making Korean food and your Brooklyn apartment and the judging, right? Like just mastering the ability of feeling your mom's judging throughout your entire life in every moment <laughs> that your mom... You mentioned your mom, and I, I don't know if like a, a person that's not Korean or even really specifically Korean will understand that. I was like, oh my God, she absolutely nails. Oh, that makes me feel great. The judging. The, yeah. the, the, and it's not a negative thing. And yeah. I, I also want people to understand that this book, while it's about cancer and the death of of loved one, and it's hard for me to read because my mom is, she's been battling cancer forever and currently the chemo's kicking her ass and it's tough to see the people you think that are not, they're just your parents and you just never think they're going to age and get sick. And then when it happens, it's, it's different. And it, uh, to me, and again, I'm talking to the author here, I did not see this and I don't want anyone to think that this is a book that is sad. I think the sadness is there for me to celebrate life and to really, when you talk about the food, and how food is the only means of communication truly where it flows freely for your mom as it is for my mom and my dad. I've never read anything that really conveys that. And yes, this book has its, its moments, but I think it was important because the way I saw it is it really made you celebrate these special moments that you write about that were probably an amalgamation of millions of things. And I really appreciated that. Oh, thank you, David. I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I will say, like, I was so particularly worried about an Asian audience and and in particular a Korean audience because I felt like being mixed race, you start, like, gaslighting yourself of just, like, is this just my family or is this a Korean thing or is this an Asian thing? And so, you know, I had to really talk myself through that and just be like, well, how can it be a lie? It's your life. You're just being truthful about your life and it will hit people if it, you know, if it resonates with them or it won't. And so it's been such a comfort to hear that from from other people who've had, you know, especially like you who've had this very probably similar Korean-American upbringing and also has had a mom battle cancer. Like it's, I mean, I read your book too and I loved it. And I also think you know, as much as I really hated my mom at some points and really resented her for how just relentless she could be. <laughs> there, when I look back at my life, and the worst part was is that she would always say like, you'll be grateful of this someday. And I am. And I read your book and I was like, it reminded me so much of when I was in high school where like, I, I feel like I also really rely, especially after my mom passed away, I like, depends so much on my work ethic and my ambition to kind of anchor my mental health after all of that. I think it became, it manifested itself in that so deeply, especially after she passed away, that I wonder if some part of that is just like 
our parents like on our backs, like constantly being like, it's never enough. It's never enough. Push, 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 push. So I think Dave talks about this in his book too, but what you're talking about, that endless push and the sort of whether, you know, it's a weight on your back or, or just the, the way you're brought up, those moments where you hate your mom, they all get kind of flattened by terms like tiger parenting, right? It gets kind of like caricaturized. Did you, I mean, Dave, also, do, do you guys worry about trying to explain to, to audiences sort of like outside of, you know, Asian American households that that is love? <laughs> like describing that and, be, and and having, you know, at, at face value, I think a lot of people hear about the things that you're talking about. Even on the on a sort of like semi comical level, what is the thing where where Korean grandmothers try to stick their fingers in your butt, like this kind of stuff? I remember Dave didn't want to put like a few things like that in the book because he's yeah. like, people will not understand that that is, mm. you know, what the, what the meaning is behind that. Was that, you know, did that present a challenge to you? Yeah, I mean, there were certain things too that I feel like as these stories become better and richer and not just like novelty those things kind of emerged. Like I knew for sure that like the world did not need another lunchbox story, even though I have one, you know? Um, and even though that played a role, it's just, it's out there. I certainly was worried about, I was worried in particular about Asian American people feeling like I was like um, propping up a stereotype by having this tiger mom. But like on the flip side, like how many white authors are like, oh, I don't want to like, you know, contribute to this stereotype of like Anglo, like, you know, Zero. whatever, like that I was well loved and, you know, came from this wholesome <laughs> environment or whatever. Like, this is my truth. And and for me, the best way to create a multidimensional character is to put it all in there. So like, yes, my mom could be relentless and judgmental and have some of these characteristics that come with the tiger mom stereotype, but she could also really surprise you. And it was important for me to incorporate those moments that's like, this is a multidimensional person that can surprise you. So when she came to my apartment in Philadelphia and saw this dilapidated, disgusting house that was infested with squirrels in the wall, you know, I was waiting for her to just rip me apart. And she could really surprise you in that moment and just not say a thing. And I think that that's what makes like a multidimensional person. They're not a caricature of themselves. They can have this type of pattern, but break it constantly. And it, it can come from like a different sort of place. Um, and just to have like rich details about who she was, you know, there was a real like vanity and elegance and she had a poetic nature too. And I think in certain ways that she um, expressed her love or said certain things, I think she had a sort of like creative streak to her that wasn't fully realized. And I think by incorporating all of this like complicated, multifaceted stuff, I was hoping that I, I could avoid that criticism. Mm -hmm. In that vein, it was uh, surprising to me because, you know, I got some years on you and I don't, I would assume my mom's probably 20 to 25 years older than your mom. I was surprised how timeless a lot of these things, the, these idiosyncratic things that I, even when I was reading, I was like, is that still a thing? Like I, I would expect that it's changed, but it's not. And that made me think how ingrained is this, particularly in Korean and again, in Asian culture, but all Asian cultures are a little bit different. But I think Korean history really accounts for so much of how Koreans behave. And I think the more I think about that, the more I've forgiven, at least my father, right? When you think about the history of 
all of your ancestors from your Korean side? Is that something that you have to sort of do revisionist history with when you think about your mom and the the the, the moments that you wish she had changed or behaviors that you wish were different? Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit worried about my future because I feel like all of the things that anyone would scold themselves for particular types of behavior that remind them of their parents have become things that I lean into very fondly, if, even if they're negative, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> I hated it when my mom— my mom would get so mad at me if I like spilled water or something on the carpet or if I like got an ice cube from the fridge and like one fell on the ground or like if I wiped anything on my pants. It was just like nitpicking all the time. And now that I'm in my 30s, like if my husband does those things, like I, I'm exactly the same person. And instead of like if my mom was alive, I would be like, don't, you're growing up to be just like your mother. Like you need to chill out. Now I'm just like, oh, that's like mom, do it more. <laughs> it's like very dangerous, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's tough. Like I, I'm 32 and like, I, I want to have a kid in the next like three or four years. And I'm curious how, what your experience has been like where, you know, I really want to be more open with my kid than my parents were. Like, especially because, you know, our parents had no idea that like, people like us could could find success on our own terms. Like, and ultimately when I look back at my life, like I know that my mom was just trying to protect me, you know? I mean, even like more outlandish than like becoming a chef is like, I want to be a rock star. Like any parent <laughs> would be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like you should uh, maybe like think about this a bit. And I, I don't blame her for like, trying to shield me from the financial, not only the financial struggle of that lifestyle, but the mental health, like, instability that comes with trying to be an artist and facing all of this rejection all the time. So I'm excited to, like, have a kid and be able to be like, no, this lifestyle is possible. But there's also this part of me that's like, but you ended up great, like, because your mom pushed you so hard. You ended up being, like, such an ambitious, driven person because she was relentless with you. And part of me wants to be able to have that to offer as well. So it's kind of tough to move forward because, like, there's so much that I really resented her for that I'm ultimately very— Yeah, I've, like, revised in this way of just like, oh, no, no, it was good. She was right all along. <laughs> well— I, I think we should have this conversation. <laughs> if you uh, have a child, and and then you could do the dad's podcast with us because it's it's a trip trying not to be my parents mm. while simultaneously being exactly like them. Mm -hmm. um, and the way I've talked it out with my my shrink is, even though I want to be nothing like them, I think that their goal was. They're trying to survive. They're trying to provide. And they were showing love the way that they were showing. Right. Um, I think the only thing that's different that I would want to do is like, I, I want to be present. Yeah. I want to be in their life. Not, I don't want them to be afraid of me. Yeah. And that, I yeah. think that's the only difference because I was so fucking scared of my parents growing up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, clearly you sort of felt the same way, you know? Yeah. I was definitely pretty terrified of my mom. <laughs> Ying, were you you weren't so scared of no, your parents? No, I was very, I was you? I was extremely scared of my father who has like tempered over time. I think all of our mm. parents I assume sort of yeah, tempered yeah. over time as they also get too sleepy to uh, yell at us <laughs> quite as much. Hey, but I, I think there's another part of this, you know, I, I I was reading I was thinking the same thing. I was like, "Oh man, I cannot wait 
till she, you know, cause you talk about having kids, you talk about how much your mom w- wanted you to, to have kids and, and things like that. And I was like, oh, it's gonna be so interesting seeing these things play out in the long term. But I think another really interesting thing that you bring up in the book and something that Dave and I struggle with as parents, as whatever we are, second generation, I guess, is enforcing that connection to our heritage, you know? And, and yeah. a lot of the things you talk about in the book is as your family members died, once your mom is gone, you can't just call her up and say, hey, how do you make that thing again? How do you pronounce this thing? What, what is you know, what is the answer to this question about my heritage that I can pretend to my friends that I knew the answer to? Whatever it is, you know? And, and for me, and I think for Dave too, it's like, you know, we're pretty white versions of Asian guys. And, and I think like, I worry a lot about, you know, that connection dissipating with each progressive generation. Like I can't give my kids as Chinese of an upbringing as I was given, you know, and they certainly won't be able to give it to the next one. So there is the struggle of how much do you want to be like your parents, but also like how much are you even able to give of yourself now that like your parents are gone? So I thought what you, you, you talked about in the book of just, you know, if there's nobody left for you to visit in Korea, is your connection to Korea still there? Like that seemed, that really truly resonated with me. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Like there was a, honestly, to just be completely transparent, there's like a real sadness that I feel seeing your like very um, casual social media content, Dave, sometimes. Cause like I I have tremendous envy, especially cause you married a Korean woman and like she comes with this other family that can also expose your son to that. There's a real sadness that when I have a kid, like, there's no person that's going to, like, make me a cook for me. And, like, uh, like I was watching this um, Korean TikTok woman, like, teaching her kids going to, like, Hangul Hakkyo, like, online. And I had this, like, real, like, stark moment where I was like, it would be weird if I, at this point, like, especially married—I'm married to, like, a white man and, like, our kid is going to be quarter Korean. Like, what— is it? I don't even speak Korean fluently. It's going to be a waste of time for them to go there. There's part of me that truly feels that way. And it's it'll be a, a strange path to forge alone because I think that my mom would have sort of given that to them naturally without me kind of like grasping at straws for it. So it's hard to know like what... Obviously, I don't want to like withhold anything from them if they're interested, but it does feel more like it's up for your... It's like yours for the taking if you want it. I can make it available for you, but I'm not going to enforce it in this way that it was more um, put into my life. I think there will be certain experiences that they have that like other kids uh, in America probably don't have. I'm sure I'll take them to Korea at some point in time and, and not a lot of kids get to do stuff like that. But uh, yeah, it is a, a confusing new new path to forge on my own. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. 
Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. I'm going to say just reading your book and just, I feel like you are more proud to be Korean than I, I am proud to be Korean. And I feel the same way with another half Korean person that I'm friends with, Mina Kimes, who has fucking the Korean flag tattooed on her, <laughs> on her arm. She's in some ways way more Korean than I, I am. And mm. I, I don't think it necessarily has to do with how Korean you look. And I think you will be surprised that when you become a mom, all of these things are going to come out that you never mm. thought. And, you, you know, you're talking about maybe nagging your, your, your husband over, you know, spill water and you're like sort of proud. <laughs> you're going to see things you've never thought. And I, I know that's going to happen. There's just no way it won't. Um, yeah. And I've, I'm doing it right now. I don't, I don't speak Korean. I speak way more Korean with my son than uh, I ever spoke to anybody. And it just yeah. comes out. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm like, oh shit, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> when it happens, I'm not even thinking about it. I'm like, oh yeah. wow. I mean, my Korean's terrible, but like, yeah. you know, he doesn't call me dad. He calls me appa. And yeah, he, yeah. I was like, 50% of all I tell him is actually oh my in God, Korean. I just had like chills. Yeah. I love it. And mm. I think the difference is, and I think one of the things that we have to all remind ourselves our parents came to this country so we didn't have to live the same lives and hardships. And whoever your child is, you just got to let them be them. You know what I mean? Like, they don't have to, at some point, us Koreans, particularly Koreans, got to stop this shit. <laughs> you know, like this this inherited trauma of Han. I mean, like we got to break this cycle somehow. And that's what I think is, is like at the end of the day, any parent, I know, Chris, you feel the same way. You ask any parent, what do you want your child to be? No one says a doctor, lawyer, a billionaire. They just want them to be fucking happy. And I think that is a universal thing, regardless of your culture, regardless of wherever or however you're raised. And that's all you want. And I'm sure that's what's going to happen. And it, times change, but that's, that's timeless. Yeah. I mean, I think that our parents want the same thing. Just happiness was a different definition, right? Happiness was like security, was not yeah. having to worry what happens tomorrow, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we inherited some more security. And so we see happiness in other ways, creative totally. fulfillment and, totally. you know, like actual partnership. But that's an important thing to remind ourselves. And a lot of people don't even know about Korean history. They don't. They have no idea that it's been the country that literally has been shit on for a couple thousand years. That's what I mean. It's like that inherited trauma. I tend to forgive way more than I ever thought I was going to. And what do you think about that? Like, did your did you think your mom resented all that, or was that that's, or do you think that's just part of being Korean to to have all of this generational Han? Is it nature versus nurture? 
I mean, I've just never known it any other way. So it's hard to say. I mean, in the same way that you're like, I don't know if this is even something that's like, that like singularly belongs to me or if it's connected to something larger. But certainly there is this sort of pattern that makes it feel very real. I mean, I certainly live my life <laughs> feeling slighted at all times. <laughs> but I, I do think that that, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people probably have that like human experience. I don't know. It's hard to say. <laughs> I don't Chris doesn't feel that way. <laughs> do you not feel like, um, I was saying like the most Korean thing about me is that my greatest joys are like rooted in vengeance. Like every <laughs> success that I've that's come into my life, it it's only better if it's like in spite of something or someone. <laughs> uh, success is best when it's somebody else's. Failure. Like for a long time, like I was like obsessed with my band just being bigger than my ex boyfriend's band. That felt the <laughs> best. Like once I like played a bigger venue than him, and I was like, I fucking did it. Um, or like I remember when like Rob Thomas tweeted about my band. I remembered this like one guy that really liked Rob Thomas that was like kind of rude to me one time. And I was like, oh, that feels so good. It doesn't oh. feel good that it's Rob Thomas. It's just that this guy who is kind of rude to me likes Rob <laughs> Thomas and Rob <laughs> Thomas likes my band. <laughs> but that's like, that, that's like Michael Jordan mentality, right? You like find some tiny slight real or imagined to be like, now I will uh, win a championship based on this guy who was maybe rude exactly. to me one yeah, time yeah. or maybe yeah. I imagined it, but whatever. Some, somehow he was rude and now I'm going to try to succeed because of that. Well, maybe Michael Jordan is part Korean. <laughs> Michael Jordan is Han <laughs> everything you just said like made me laugh and smile because clearly that has been my main objective in life is <laughs> is not necessarily to win but just to get vengeance yeah you know? but do you my think gosh. also I think it's part of the way that I was like it's I mean I'm sure all Asian parents are kind of like this but like my I was just relentlessly compared to other people so I'm constantly judging myself next to other people because my mom was always like oh, Sarah's in this class you know like <laughs> great <laughs> like, fucking Sarah yeah like oh Esther just got accepted to this fellowship like what are you doing like you know so it's always like that I'm always like I always feel like I'm directly pitted against anyone remotely in my vicinity and field. I know nothing about that life <laughs> at all. It's totally foreign to me. <laughs> just ask Chris. We have to yeah. constantly compare everything we do to somebody else that's just a little bit better. <laughs> just like, can't we just be happy on our own terms? No, we have to beat somebody else. Uh, what I was trying to get to earlier, though, like obviously like this book has been recommended to Dave to me over and over again because like food plays such a central role and, you know, is going to be that thread we're talking about. You know, it's funny, Dave, we've basically given Michelle a child that she doesn't have during this <laughs> podcast and talked to her about this, this uh, theoretical, hypothetical child. But, you know, food, right? That's where you found solace. That's where you found connection when like sort of traditional therapy wasn't working for you and, 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 and kind of following Mangchi's uh, instruction who, you know, Dave and I are both huge fans of. Um, <laughs> one thing I want to say similar to what Dave was complaining about in the beginning about you just being too talented at multiple things. I mean, Dave, I don't know how you felt, but I was reading this and I was like, wow, this person who is not a food writer is better at writing about food than anybody who writes about food. You know, you talked about just, I'm thinking about so many different parts, but without having to use dumb phrases about like unctuous mouthfeel and whatever the fuck, <laughs> impossibly crispy nonsense. Like you're talking about how you try to cook 
these sort of luxurious Western foods, steaks and lobsters and things. And then I think you have a line that's just like, this plain porridge I ate was the only thing that made me feel full. Yeah. Was the only thing that made me feel full. I can't believe you wrote about pine nut porridge. (laughs) (laughs) It's insane. It's crazy. The challenge was like, I was like, there's no fucking way. (laughs) 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 And if you don't know, you got to read it because if you don't grow up in a Korean household, you'll never understand. Yeah. But, you know, you you explained it. Yeah. You really nailed it. Yeah. I think without the burden of, I'm a food writer. Which comes with so much, like I have to do this and that and the other thing, and just speaking about it real, like realistic. But that's what we 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 need more people that aren't in food, writing about food. Yeah, honestly, because we got to get out of this fucking bubble, and it's about practical, real information in your writing. Like, what was that bit? Like, where you were like, when I get to Korea, I, I, I meet my cousin. We directly go to the Korean Chinese restaurant. We order jajimya. Like. That's the realest sentence you'll ever fucking read <laughs> about getting to Korea is mm. what's the first thing you ate? Jajimian. Like mm-hmm. I, I was like, that's real. Like that is so fucking real. And anybody that's Korean that's visited their relatives is like, oh, that was me too. Like, you're never gonna see a food writer write that or say, like, hey, listen, you know, they'll probably give you the top five places and they'll give you a description <laughs> of what Korean Chinese food is. You you don't you know what I mean? It wasn't built for that audience. But I also think what I loved about your writing about food, it's not, it's the kind of food writing I hope that food writing gets to because right now it's still writing for an audience that the writer feels they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Like your book is, this is it because I'm expecting you to know, you know, for the most part. And that's Mm. the kind of food writing I think we need more of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Were you... I don't know, how should I ask this? Like, were you worried about the writing about food part of this? What, was that, a, did it pose a different challenge than sort of talking about, you know, your personal life and, and your mother? I actually found that to be the easiest part to write about. I mean, uh, I feel like food is obviously just ripe for the taking when it comes, I mean, it's all sensory detail. And also, you know, unlike the rest of the memoir, you can revisit food. Like, even if it's, like, not completely the same, like, you can, you know, and I was also able to take a couple of trips to Korea where I, for, for research where I could, <laughs> you know, sort of um, re-eat certain dishes so I could have it sort of top of mind. Whereas the stuff that was harder was, like, remembering what my dad said to me at this bar, you know, during the most traumatizing period of time in my life in Seoul while my mom, you know, they were saying that my mom was going on a ventilator. Like, figuring out what happens in those two hours was a lot harder for me than like describing fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> this is, but this is exactly what Dave's talking about. Like food writers out there listening, it's a lot easier to write about what food tastes like. Yeah, than but it's, to do so, other it's things. it was on, really just so it's enjoyable true. because it's just like you're talking about something delicious. But I think that you obviously write about food so well. I mean, I think that the people like even just like reading Mangchi's uh, cookbook, like. I'm sure Mangchi would never consider herself a food writer or even like a writer. You know, I'm, that's her second language. But, you know, I remember reading her talking about Tongchimi and she's like, it's effervescent. It tastes like, I'm sure someone helped her, maybe helped her with effervescent. But for, <laughs> for her, she was like, Tongchimi, it tastes like, like pop soda. And I was like, it does taste like pop soda. You know what I mean? Like, but it's not the most like eloquent way to maybe put it, but it's it is like, no one's put it that way, you know? And I think a lot of writing sometimes can surprise you. Like, I remember 
trying to describe something like so ephemeral, like grief, like how does it feel? It feels like, and I just, you know, just trying to like put a name on this like very d- difficult thing to describe. And it's like, it feels like I'm like colliding with a room with no doors. And so many, and I was like, does that work? Like, does that make <laughs> sense? Like, and then so many people have like pulled out that line and been like, that is exactly what it feels like. So sometimes it's just like grasping for straws and you're like, I don't know if this works. Like, I remember there's another line where I talk about like putting the Korean pepper into tinjang and being this like ancient thing because it's like, you're taking this raw new version and you're dipping it into like its fermented ancient cousin. And I was like, I remember my like showed my husband this line. And I was like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I had no idea if that was working. And then I had this like uh, chat with EJ Ko, who's like another Korean uh, American writer. And she she singled out that line. She was like, that was really great. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I wasn't sure about that one. I'm glad that you pointed it out. Because sometimes you just don't know if it's working. But if it like, you know, you just try your best, I guess. But that's what made it so great. Because it's not like the food writing that you read about at all. I mean… And I think it's why Lisa Donovan's book was so refreshing because it wasn't like a food journalist writing about food and and it's your experiences and that's what made it so great. You, you, yeah, you even give Mangchi a shout out. Like, that's that was amazing. Does she even know that she's in your book? Yeah, she knows. Yeah, she she had actually, she's been really wonderful and generous person with me because I feel like that could have gone really badly. You know, I feel like um, I gave her the first essay that I wrote that was sort of on, on, that was just about her basically. Like before Crying in H Mart, there was an essay that was more of just an ode to her because I thought it was just a funny story that like someone online who has no idea that you exist like could come to mean so much to me was like such a huge anchor. And, you know, I discovered that so many people feel that way about her. She she knows that she's played this role for a lot of Korean adoptees, a lot of people who've lost parents, a lot of, um, you know, people who've married into Korean families and trying to, like, learn and, and sort of reach across the table. Um, so she has had a lot of, you know, I you know, like everyone, I just, it feels like only you feel this way. But so many people feel this way about her. Um, but I was really lucky. She actually had me um, at her apartment for dinner uh, on my 30th birthday and she made uh, she bought me like a peri baguette like cake and like made pulgogi and like all these different banchan yeah it was wonderful she she knows and and um, I think she's read she's definitely read some of the book uh, yeah <laughs> man I'm so jealous that sounds so good spending a birthday at Mark Chi's house holy cow I love her I mean honestly uh, if and when my mom passes Mong Chi's gonna have a, a, a new <laughs> relationship with me as well <laughs> Um, you know, I was thinking about it in your, but it wasn't what I thought you were going to add. What did your mom add seven up to? Because it wasn't. Kalbi, Kalbi. Kalbi. That's something I'd not, I'd never heard before. Oh, really? That was new. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, I should like make that more often, but, uh, I remember that being, being a thing. It was like Mulya and seven up were were her go-to. And, but she doesn't add fruit. No fruit. Yeah. Okay. I feel like a lot of like other Korean people use like pear or apple, but she didn't use any. I'm I'm confused. (laughs) I was pretty sure it was just sparkling fruit juice, right? Because I've been drinking it that way. Seven up in our household was specifically reserved for Munengen and and for the Dongjimu. Yeah. Really? Which is why when I was right there, I was like, I was expecting it to be that. And I was like, oh, wait, that's not. 
Kyle, I was like, yeah, Kyle I was like, whoa. Well, that I've never work. heard that with Ding Mian, actually. Oh, it's so good. I remember, I remember actually writing certain parts of my book and being like, what if David Chang reads this and is like, <laughs> she is not <laughs> <laughs> well, your nightmare has come well, true. Yeah. Well, don't tell I, me. I, it, 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 you really, you really nailed it. The, the food. Um, yeah. But uh, if you haven't tried Seven Up in Dongjimi, you should do it because it's the perfect. Wait, what? I will say I can't fucking figure out Dongjimi. I've like followed Mangchu's recipe and like I can't get it. Then there's this like my mom never made kimchi, um, but there was this Korean grocery store by my. In Eugene, that was not HMR. Ours was called Sunrise Market. And they had these big bottles, uh, big jars of Dongjimi that like, they were like whole though, or like halved. Mm. Well, I'll give you my recipe that I haven't made since Major Domo opened. So, um, wow. So I take mu radish. I thinly slice them. I don't leave it in bigger chunks. Mm. I, take, I, I take any kind of apple or pear. And I take uh, onions, garlic, I slice some, maybe some carrots, some scallions for sure. I salt, salt like heavily salt it. Uh, but I also throw in a lot of California citrus. So a ton of citrus Whoa. fruit in it. And I salt it all. And I, and I leave oh. it there till it basically turns into its own liquid. And then that's when... Uh, do I add sugar? I got to read the recipe. I, I, it's, I think, one of the recipes I've actually written down. Um, but I usually do it by taste. You know, like, oh, it needs this, it needs that. And uh, make sure that's weighted down and, and, and letting it ferment and, until, like, I, you know, I have lactobacillic fermentation happening. Um, and that honestly takes, like, three, four days um, okay. just to get a little effervescence. Why I think 7-Up is great is because it's sort of adds to that bubbleness and you need to add that sweetness. And if it's not enough vinegar, you can add some rice wine vinegar, but that's why I like the citric, uh, the citrus oh. to help bring out a lot of that acidity. That's just mine. Uh, no one actually told me how to make dongchimi. It's just what I, I do and I make. It tastes actually pretty similar to really good dongchimi, but what makes it and what takes it over the top is the 7-Up. It's got to be 7-Up. This ancient <laughs> Korean ingredient. <laughs> Wait, can I ask Very like two quick questions? Like, what do you? What is your favorite kimchi, and what do you think is the most underrated Korean food? <sighs> my God! Wow. My God! I don't know. I mean, for me, it's still always going to be gaktuki because I'll always eat gaktuki in ways you're not supposed to eat it, right? I just like octagi on rice and pop, mm. but, you know, you're supposed to eat it with soups and stews. Mm. Um, What's going to be the hot new Korean item? Octagi? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think so. Like, no, no. What, what, what dish do you think is, like, the next, like, do you think it's, like, an underrated Korean dish that's, like, the next, like… That's not, like, a Korean hot dog type of thing, you know? Oh, uh, that's not… That's not what we're talking about. No, we're not. And we're not talking about <laughs> cream pizza, which is ter terrible. Um, Ew, and that they eat it with… That they… Uh, <laughs> those people. Those people. <laughs> those people. They eat it with pickles. Like sweet pickles. It's so which weird. is so weird um, to me. <laughs> yeah, I'll say it. It's fucking weird. And it's gross. There. Yeah, I'm not a fan. Oh not my a fan. God. <laughs> you can't tell me it's oh good. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, is, is, I don't actually, I don't, I don't know what you would possibly say here, Dave. This is a great question. Is there an uh, like, uh, what do I guess for Western I think audiences, about, right? I think I think about it a lot. Um, huh. Spit it out. 
I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm Russell. Well, okay. You, you, people can go down the road of kimchi and, and, and the millions of ways you can eat kimchi. But like, that's going to take some time. I, I don't think we're going to be there in the next 25 years, but maybe what? 50 years. I disagree. Yeah, I, I, I think that Petri kimchi is pretty much going to be the only kimchi that people no, are, are comfortable with. I don't think so. I was dead wrong on some. <laughs> I, I was dead wrong on gochujang. Like uh, oh when we God. came Gochujang. up with Sam sauce, <laughs> uh, I, I didn't think that anybody was going to name it or pronounce it gochujang, so we just gave it Sam sauce. Yeah. And literally, by the time it came out uh, in the in a in your manufactured bottle, like I was seeing potato chips with like gochujang, I was like, "What the fuck is happening?" So, Korean culture and food is just moving at such a rapid pace. Korean culture in general, music, film, I think it's probably going and. <laughs> I want to say it's um, denjang, getnip, or ingredients that will become more popular. Well, getnip. Yeah. That's a hard one, I think. You know what's crazy, though? It's like, I think other types of kimchi are actually more palatable than pechu kimchi. Like, I think chongga kimchi and dongjimi are like more palatable for a Western taste palate. It's because not for, it's not it's fermented, more, really. Well, it's more pickly. They're like pickles, you know? They're like more like pickle. Like that texture even, it's like crunchy and easier. Whereas gennip is like a really intense… Also, mm. like you made like bosam like really popular. I think well, that that's the really. most disgusting <laughs> Korean food that exists, honestly. But I'm like I not bosam. Make- I, so this… <laughs> Chris but now a lot I, of like people, I feel like know about bosam because like it was big. <laughs> wasn't it like big at Momofuku and like… Yeah. It's funny. I've talked to like like another Korean like for some Korean friends, and like a lot of us like don't. I don't like posam at all. And gennim took a long time for me to even like. I definitely don't think it's going to be that personally. I guess for me, it's more of these barriers. When I start seeing gennip on menus, it may not be widely accepted, but when I start to see gennip on menus, that's when I know. It's a it's a telltale sign that something else is about to happen at, at larger. Like that to me is like mm. a cultural a marker. But when it comes to something like bosam, the bosam we made is not modam bosam or anything that's right. traditional whatsoever. And I've spoken to enough Korean restaurant owners that are like fuck you, Dave. Uh, we serve <laughs> we, we serve <laughs> our bosam, and people are like, well, it's not pork shoulder. I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm so yeah. so sorry. Like yeah, you think it's you know, but um. In terms of what's what's due, I, I want to say it's the jigas, but yeah. I just I still have a hard time thinking that the main reason why I don't think jigas will ever ever become widely accepted, at least in America, is because white people will never eat it at the temperature it needs to be consumed at. Yeah, ever. It's too hot. <laughs> too hot. They're gonna be like, "That soup is boiling." You expect me to eat that? That I know what they're thinking. I'm like, yeah. 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 It's the only temperature that you're supposed to eat it at. It should you never be get like, cooler. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I want to say kejang. You know, we 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 did. Oh yeah. All, uh, you know, like I've been trying to popularize things, but these are the things that I wish become popular. Right? The reality, the things that are going to be popular are going to be like hot dog. Yeah. You know, something like that. You have so little faith in the Western audience. You're gonna see some white dude open up. A hot dog shop that does like some saucer of ice cream in the middle of some hot dog cone. You know what my favorite thing is? Is like finding out the weird like hacks. Like I remember when I went to Hangulhakyo, the Korean hack… Like this one Korean woman had this hack where she would buy 
Pillsbury mm. crescent rolls. She would just put brown sugar and like nuts in it and then make and then like fry it like hot dog. And that way she didn't have to make the dough. It was easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it was so that's, good. Something, that's something that my mom did as well. But she really? would put yeah, uh, yeah. binsu in it. And, and Not no. bingsu, pot. I, I hate I hate red bean. That's the one really? thing I can't do. Whoa. Uh, this is a dumb question. Is there, does this sort of, this this thing of, this question that we're even asking of like, what is the next taste from Korean culture or whatever uh, that yeah. will be brought into uh, American palates? Does this question exist in, say, music? Like, do you, do musicians think, man, the general audience is not ready for this kind of, this style, this this sort of music, this genre? Does, does this exist in other art forms? Dave and I talk about this only in food. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like there's so much less of a, like, science behind— I mean, there is, but it's, like, the popular music is not really using it. Like, maybe it's, like— Like, obviously, there's a, a shift towards incorporating more electronic elements, I guess. But I feel like it's the same kind of thing where it's, like— I don't know, like, molecular gastronomy is, like, the auto-tune of, like, music or something. <laughs> where it's, like, it—, it it, it comes in waves, you know. Like I don't, I don't, I don't follow like food trends very much, but I can't imagine that that type of thing is like really. I don't know. It's it's not as popular. I mean, don't you feel like like it's coming, returning to the homey, returning to the homey foods? <laughs> yeah, I, I I I totally agree. I think it's actually becoming uncool to like know a lot about restaurant food. <laughs> yeah, <stuff. laughs> is that weird? I mean, do you guys feel like that's part of the zeitgeist right now? It's like the anti past 15, 20 year movement of like being in the inn on everything that happens in restaurants? I don't know. I mean, I think that it's just like you hear about a, like a good restaurant and you want to try it. But I don't, I don't really know if I, there was a while for like that I wanted to try every, you know, hip new Korean spot just to like see, just it was like such a novelty, like up high, high end, mm-hmm. like um, pre-fee, like Korean menu. It's like, what the fuck is that? Uh, but I, I think I've done that enough at this point that I don't really need to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess the one thing is just like, uh, I think probably the same thing that's happening in the food world that's similar to the music world is just that there's more of a focus on a diversity of creators. And that I think is something that's being pushed in bo- both realms like pretty strongly that's exciting. Yeah. I mean, that's that seems exciting as a listener too, right? Like with food, it's all like, you know, the, the argument is always like, hey, there's more ways to deliciousness than a beef patty between two buns. There are other pathways to like enjoyment. It seems like. And also just like recognizing who has power. I mean, I think Dave like talked about this in his book really well, where it's just like, you know, we as uh, like, I mean, history and society has a way of like putting a certain mm-hmm. type of chef like on a pedestal in the same way. Uh, that we do in music and like we talk about those two types of food um, in very different ways and I think starting to examine that and think about um, food that's like I don't know even just like taking Asian food seriously seems like a new thing in the same way that like or like even calling it out that like people's like thoughts on MSG are racist or like this like this is like a new like dialogue that's like changing in the last like um few years, like largely because people are speaking out about it. But I feel like that's starting starting in the music industry too, of just like examining like the questions that like women in music get asked are very different than the questions that men get asked. And and calling attention to that, things are changing, I think 
sort of in a similar way and, and hopefully the, the food world. Well, speaking of your, your future, is it going to be more literary focused or more music focused or are you going to do both? Um, I have no idea, honestly. I'm in like this exciting new place where for the past six years, I've always had like three huge projects I've been juggling. And for the first time, I really, I don't really know what's next. And I'm kind of into that. And I want to enjoy and live my life and and be like a thoughtful person and find what comes next organically. Um, I am, you know, Crying in H Mart was optioned to become a feature film. And so I am writing the screenplay for that uh, in the next soon. (laughs) And That's, that's um, exciting. Yeah. Can I play the can I play uh, 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 an extra? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> somewhere somewhere Our in the film. A celebrity cameo for sure. A it stock would be an boy honor. in uh, <laughs> in H Mart. Yeah, you could be the cashier at H Mart. <laughs> yeah. Also also I have to say it was like the most uh, Korean or Asian thing I've ever heard where you're like, well, I'm just kind of excited to not know what I'm doing and not have any big projects. I mean, I'm writing a movie. But you <laughs> yeah, know, it's like nothing really. <laughs> Like, okay. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, I'm not, I haven't started it yet. So for me, it's just like, I'm not really giving it. Uh, well, you haven't started it yet? We're yeah. so, so disappointed <laughs> in you, Michelle. I know. I know. But for me, I'm just like, oh, I wrote a, the book. So like how, I'm just taking from there. I don't, I'm like not taking it very seriously. <laughs> uh, I think it'll just come naturally. But I don't know. I would like to write another book. Um, I feel like I learned so much from that experience that it would just be a shame to not apply it again. And as I get older, it's like a more relaxed lifestyle a little bit. Uh, I can I can see myself like go, leaning more into like the technical, more like less like personal stuff, like more technical kind of writing. Like food writing. <laughs> yeah. that The way that I said that, it sounds like I'm going to like start a medical journal. Or just <laughs> yeah. write like yeah, instruction manuals. Well, yeah. I want to get you out of here, not on uh, anything super heavy, but you know, when I think about people that are true eaters, and this is going to surprise people, I think the group of people that I really think are the best eaters, and it's not just eating at the fanciest restaurants, are skateboarders, right? Uh, <laughs> professional skateboarders, crazily enough, know everywhere to fucking eat. It's crazy. I like how you just say the that like it's a registered fact. Or super high. That's from my opinion. My, my, yeah, my, yeah. my, my two cents is are skateboarders. That's cool. Number yeah. two. Yeah. Over the years, I think singers were number one, but skateboarders have, uh, musicians, touring musicians have been eclipsed mm, by mm. professional skateboarders. But oh, yeah, right behind yeah. professional skateboarders, that would be on the top tip of everybody's tongue, are touring musicians. You tour a lot. You have yeah, toured a lot. Yeah. People do not understand that you guys know exactly where to eat, what to eat. Is that true or not true? I don't know how true that is because I think that a lot of where we have to eat has to be within like a six block radius of a venue, which sometimes and more often than not is in like a kind of food desert. So we all know everywhere around like certain venues maybe. But I definitely, I definitely have like, I guess you get like acquainted pretty well with like regional bounties. Um, and I, I would like to pride myself. My friend Adam Schatz has a, a cool running uh, Excel spreadsheet of of different places to eat, <sighs> near, specifically near um, certain uh, <sighs> venues. Uh, that I'm excited to check out because he's coming on tour with us um, starting in late July. So right, I, I, I would cities. like to write about that and, and start. Let's throw um, some cities out there. We'll just oh, say yeah. Se- Seattle. Where, where, where do you want to eat? Oh, my God. Seattle's hard. <laughs> I don't know. 
That's it's too on the spot. I'd have <laughs> to like. Is, I, it's been a while. Like I haven't been on tour for like almost two years. You know, so I can't. Where would I eat in Seattle? Um, I don't know. I don't know. What so I you're saying say. you're telling us that you hate the city of Seattle? No, I, I don't hate the city of Seattle. <laughs> I do have a soft spot for. Um, it's not a restaurant, which is embarrassing. Um, but uh, Uwaji I like. I always like going to Uwajimaya, mm-hmm. uh, which is like a big. Asian grocery that's not Asian Mart, uh, but I really love it there. Um, and I feel like that whole area has like a lot of really good Asian mm-hmm. restaurants. But Seattle, I'm I'm blanking. I'm very sorry, Seattle. San, San Francisco or Oakland. <laughs> He's not going to stop. <laughs> this is just really terrible. This is my worst nightmare. I have to get back to you on this, David. I'm I'm I'm, I'm all really right, sorry. All right, all right. I have we'll like specific cut. ones in mind. I will say that like um, in Los Angeles, which is like where I was recently, I really loved um, Found Oyster. Have you eaten there? No. It's incredible. I just went there. Amazing seafood platter. Really good fried oysters. Really good crudo. Um, Hangari is a kalguksu restaurant, which would be my… Though… It's on and off. Uh, I really like Hangari. It's like… I feel like kalguksu is a very underrated Korean noodle soup that I don't know Oof. like why it hasn't been popularized. Um, in Eugene, Oregon, where I'm from… So, of course, like I have uh, those off the cuff… is um. Newman's fish and chips, incredible. Uh, really, really good fish and chips. Like I, love I feel this. like we have really good seafood in Eugene. And there's also this place called Akira that's an amazing uh, sushi restaurant. I have a lot of these, but they're you know uh, I'd have to like Don't think about that. Only, about only, only, only. But those I, I like two I, I, are, like I coming agree. up. Right I now. like what you think about SuJB. I'm uh, not SuJB. Kalguksu. SuJB is the shit also, yeah. I mean, you basically get SuJB at a Kalguksu house. And totally, I also totally. am like, why do people not want to eat this? This is this is extremely delicious, right? Yeah, yeah. You know. They do, but they don't know. Like, I think… I'm surprised. Like, all of my white friends that I've showed… I've made kimchi chicken for, they love it. They, like, can't get enough of it. They're making it at home. I'm telling you. They're, like, they're all about it. I feel like, if anything, like, weirdly, TikTok has been really into like Korean culture and food. Like it's really wild to see like the kind of stuff that they get into. Because I, I I really think that… I think that it's definitely not in the next 20 years that like you're going to see Gendim on the menu. Like I think it's it's really soon. Wow. I mean already there are white people being like, I got to try Chatjuk. And you're like, what? You're, I was like, you're not going to… I was like, you're not going to like it. Believe me. Like don't don't try Chatjuk. You'll be surprised. You're going to see it at some… You know, Australian breakfast spot serving <laughs> avocado toast pretty soon. Don't worry it's about like it. Avocado toast and chachuk. Yeah, unbelievable. It was meant to be. Um, la- one last thing I want to ask: is, is, Does H Mart going to give you like the 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 number one customer card? Like how many? Like they yeah. got to give you unlimited points. Like this is not cool that. If, they, if you don't get like royalties just by saying the name <laughs> H Mart every time promoting, trust me, H Mart is one of the biggest food businesses out there. They, they they should be able to pay you royalties forever. I know. I should get like a big H Mart card that's just like a thousand dollar like shopping spree or <laughs> Not something. Multi- yeah, or shopping uh, spree. I will say I was really nervous about that. Uh, I don't know. They haven't brought it up. Um, but I have had a meeting with H Mart, and I think that we're going to be doing stuff together. And it was really moving because I went into this meeting with H Mart, and I was like, okay, I have to like put together a pitch deck for H Mart of like what we could possibly do. Because I, I would love to do like a signing there or something, or like. And I came onto the Zoom meeting, and it was like the CEO of H Mart 
and like this boardroom of like oh Mart people. And then they they were just like the CEO like was just like I feel like you're everyone's Korean American daughter right now and like mm-hmm. we just want to support you in any way we can. And I almost just started crying because I was like, <laughs> like, can you come to each of our locations and cry uh, in person yeah, in yeah. the H Mart stores? But I, I, I didn't realize. Like, I mean, it's really nice because like we've been we've been raised to feel like we have these like really niche stories that no one can relate to. And I think maybe you come from like a slightly older, like you're a little bit older than me. And I think that you're like maybe a little bit more cynical about it than I am. About like <laughs> oh, other, yeah, 100%. About people getting into it. And I'm starting to see it now. And I'm definitely more cynical than like someone that's maybe like five, 10 years younger than me. But I feel like it's incredible that there are people like us that can like be on the New York Times bestseller list. And it's like about our like family, you know? And these are the kind of stories I never thought I would write because like I wanted to write something that was relatable. And then it took just writing my story and not thinking about other people because I had to. And so many people have related to this story. It's amazing to feel like my life is like not this niche, like sub character or whatever. Like, um, not at all. And that's why the book and is so powerful. It's, it's, uh, even if you're not Korean, if you've had cancer, which almost everybody I know has had in their yeah. family, you can relate yeah. to it. There's a lot of different yeah. ways you can relate to this book. And even if you can't relate to it, it's awesome writing. It Thank just you. is really, really good writing. And I think you probably need to hire Jerry Maguire for your H Mart negotiations because <laughs> it ain't show friends, it's show business. You literally yeah. need to sell them, show me the money, and say, that's it. Oh, yeah. That's it. I mean, hire, just... hire Bob Sugar or Jerry Maguire, and you're going to be all good. But um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm honored that you were on this podcast and uh, you, you spent a long time talking to us about all kinds of oh, things I'm so that I hopefully honored. nobody was asking you because I know you've done a thousand interviews no, and hopefully we didn't I'm, ask you anything so that grateful. you've heard before. I was like, he's definitely like not going to have read the book. He's too busy. And you're such an overachiever that you <laughs> you actually like read it right here and talking to me about it. I really appreciate getting to meet both of you. And uh, yeah, I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Go eat some food in H Mart. Go eat some jachuk. If you don't know what jachuk is, if you like it, man, uh, God bless you. Uh, I like it with a little sugar, and it's something that my mom would make a lot. My grandmother would make a lot. And thank God my my son Hugo loves jachuk too. A high-caloric experience, let me tell you what, because you're basically just eating pureed pine nuts. But I never thought I'd read a book, a memoir, or they're talking about Jachu is crazy to me. She's an amazing writer, and I was so honored that she joined us. Please check her out. She is on tour as well. Uh, Japanese Breakfast is on tour. Uh, let me see. She is July 21st in good old Silver Spring, Maryland at the Fillmore. Uh, then she's out to Richmond on July 22nd. She's all over the East Coast from Asheville to New Haven, Back to Philadelphia, her hometown. She's on the road for quite a bit. Go see some live music. Not just Yola Tango, not just Japanese Breakfast. Go see some comedy shows. There's a lot of people that have been stuck indoors and not been able to make a living because they have not been on the road. And it's not even that. It's just good to go out 
and congregate and see live music and go laugh with a bunch of people, go do so. Go check out these bands that I talked about or any band that you want to see. Go out there. Get vaccinated. Please. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you. Oh, give us five stars on our iPad page. <laughs>